So that's Acts 17, starting at verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Antipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into this house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who were escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. And let's pray again. Father, we do pray that you would show us Christ. You'd help us to see what it means to live for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the year 112 AD, an imperial magistrate named Pliny the Younger wrote to the Roman Emperor Trajan with some questions about how he was handling the troublesome Christians living in his area. And in a fairly matter-of-fact kind of way, he outlined his approach when a Christian was brought before him. I ask them three times to confirm if they are a Christian, he says. Once they've confirmed three times, I have them put to death. If they're willing to deny or recant their Christian faith, I then ask them to do three things. Number one, repeat an invocation to the Roman gods. Number two, offer wine and frankincense to Caesar. Number three, curse Christ. And the order of those three things is significant and gets to the heart of why Christians were seen as so troubling at that stage in the Roman Empire. The issue is not, first of all, that they're worshipping Jesus Christ as God. Well, the Romans had many different gods. Uh, so adding one more to the list of all the many Roman gods, not a major issue, maybe a bit eccentric, but nothing wrong with that. The issue, though, was the Christians' complete refusal to do anything other than worship Jesus Christ as God. 
And today we can still see versions of that response. So say that Jesus or Christian faith are, you know, just one of many equally valid options and, well, no one's going to bat an eyelid. No one really cares. No one will even notice. The world is full of many different people and groups claiming all kinds of different things. So, you know, carry on. No problem. You Christians are just a kind of curious irrelevance. But say that Jesus or Christian faith are the only true way and and refuse as a result to acknowledge other world faiths as equally valid or refuse to say that other ways of living that are contrary to Christian faith are just as good. And suddenly you're dangerous. You're committing the only sin the wider culture agrees on, of intolerance. It's often put like this in John chapter 14 verse 6. Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one has a problem with that. You know, Jesus is the way, but oh, you know, so is Muhammad and so is secular liberalism and it's all fine. Many different ways. But in that verse, Jesus himself, and these are his words, remember, Jesus himself continues, no one comes to the Father except through me, he says. And so if you say that, suddenly the full wrath of the media and the secular RE teachers and the HR department and Twitter all come crashing down on you. Now, of course, there are ways to express that Jesus is the only way with love. And there are ways that can fall short of showing that love. But that isn't the point here, you see. Pliny and the Romans and the world today aren't arguing with the tone of what is said, they're arguing with the message itself. The idea that you won't fall in line and you won't worship the gods of the culture and live for what they're living for and affirm that what they love is good. And that is deeply troubling and unsettling. Now, in in the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel going out to both Jew and Gentile, particularly in these latest chapters through the ministry of Paul and his companions. And if you're joining us here for the first time today, we'll be working our way through these chapters. And this is where we've got to today. And this this morning, we see again in in chapter 17, these first 15 verses, the exclusive message that Paul was preaching and two very different responses to it. And we see here earlier versions of the kind of attitude that ended up with Pliny casually executing Christians a few decades later. And the question for us as we read this now is how will we respond to this exclusive universal message about Jesus? Will we draw near eagerly or will we resist it? And what does that look like? Well, let's look first of all at the message. Verses 1 to 4, you can see on the back of the notice sheet, if you want to follow, Paul's message. The promised Messiah is the saviour of the world. The promised Messiah is the saviour of the world. If you like maps, I'm not a big guy for maps, but I know some people like them. Here we go. This is where he's been going. He started off on the right. He's kind of top left now. That's at the top of Greece. That's where Thessalonica is. And uh, he'll be making his way down Um, in a moment uh, later in the chapter down to Athens which is sort of middle on the left there that's what he's been doing and if you've been with us you'll have noticed a pattern Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles but his practice when he first arrives in a new town is to go first to the Jewish synagogue to preach the good news about Jesus there and he does that in Thessalonica and when he moves on to Berea in verse 10 
he does it again. So you can see Thessalonica and then Berea quite close to it, top left. He goes to the synagogue. And why does he do that? Because this is who Jesus is, you see. He is the Jewish Messiah. He's the one that the people of Israel have been waiting for. And it's quite striking what he does when he goes to the synagogue. Do you see this in verse 2? What do you think when you, when, when you think of a Christian preacher going to preach somewhere about Jesus? What do you imagine they're going to say? You, know, you might think, well, I know what they'll do. They'll go and they'll say, let me tell you about the miracles that Jesus did. Let me tell you about how he turned water into wine and he calmed a storm and he fed 5,000 and he healed the sick and he raised the dead. And then he died and he himself rose from the dead. Let me tell you about all the eyewitnesses who saw him. You might imagine that would be the content of his message. But look at, look at what he focused on here. Do you see this in verse 2? <clears throat> Luke tells us that isn't what he focused on. Instead, what Paul did was he went and he opened the Jewish scriptures, what Christians now call the Old Testament. And from there, he explained and proved that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Isn't that striking? It's as if even with just the Old Testament, you already have enough to say you should be expecting a king who's going to come and suffer and die. Now, maybe you might be able to think of specific passages in the Old Testament that would help with that. You could think of Isaiah chapter 53 or Psalm 22 we looked at on Good Friday if you, you were here. But more than just sort of the, the you know, specific chapters here and there, there is the whole shape of the history of God's people if you think about it, that makes it clear. So God is holy, sin is serious. You need a sacrifice to deal with sin. God's people in the Old Testament were totally clear on that. So they had this whole sacrificial system with animals, but it was kind of clear that animals weren't enough to deal with sin once and for all because you had to keep doing them. So there was that sense, that implication that you're going to need more than a bull or a goat to deal with your sin. You're going to need a perfect human being to stand in the place of sinners. But then the history of God's people also shows us that generation after generation was not able to produce that perfect human being. Judges and kings were equally flawed and, and part of the problem, not the solution. And so God made promises in the prophets that he would deal with the problem of human sin once and for all. And so Paul is saying, this Jesus, the one that we've been talking about, the one who lived a perfect life and, and willingly died and rose from the dead, he's the one that you've been waiting for, you people of God. And do you notice then the effect of that message? Do you see verse 4? Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And again, Luke keeps pointing out men and women, men and women. And it's the same later in Berea, verse 11 and 12. Many Jews believe but also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So what is Luke showing us? He's showing us that the same gospel of Jesus who died and rose in fulfilment of God's promises is good news for men and women and for Jew and Gentile. It's the message both need to hear. This isn't a message, there isn't one message for Jews and another message for Gentiles. It's the same message, it's the same Jesus. And maybe today we need to be reminded but both that reaching Jewish people still needs to be a priority for Christians because that's who he is. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And we support Stephen and Deborah Pasht in 
uh, in Geneva, reaching Jewish people. But this is also about befriending our own Jewish neighbours. And we have many in North London. And evangelism among Jewish people is a very sensitive thing. But like with any person who doesn't know Jesus, it begins with real friendship, sharing life, asking gentle questions to open the conversation up. But maybe today we also need to be reminded it is the Jewishness of the gospel that makes it good news for all people everywhere, Jew or Gentile. Because God's plan from the start was not to single out the people of Israel merely for their own benefit, but for them to bless the whole world. And that is why this message is not just one of many messages about how we can get saved, one more spirituality to add to the list, one more path up the mountain. Now, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, it's because he's coming in fulfilment of the plan that began right back at the beginning of creation with Adam and Eve and then Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and so on. It's always been one plan to bless and save the world. The promised Messiah is the saviour of the world. But as we began to think about earlier, that claim is a challenging and disturbing message. And what we then see in the verses that follow are two very different responses from the Jewish people in Thessalonica on the one hand and then the Jewish people in Berea on the other hand. So let's look at these two very different responses. First of all, in Thessalonica, we have the response of clinging to power with violence and lies. Clinging to power with violence and lies. Verses 5 to 9. Have a look at this. Verse 5. Other Jews were jealous. And we've seen this before in Acts. Their concern is loss of power and control and influence. The desire to be in control and maintain power can drive human beings to take extreme measures, can't it? We know that. You know, we keep hearing in the news of politicians being accused of misusing their power to protect themselves. But it also happens in business, doesn't it? All the time. It happens in our own lives, if we're honest, when we tell lies, big or small, to protect ourselves and save face and avoid embarrassment. And, and here, when the Christians come to town, the Jewish establishment, as it were, they, they fear they're going to lose followers, and you could imagine with that money and influence, and so they use a very old tactic. Do you notice this? They, they start a riot, and then they lie about the cause. Do you see that verse 5? They formed a mob, they started a riot, and then verse 6, their claim is that these men have been causing trouble all over the world. See the irony in that? A decade or so later, the, the Emperor Nero was accused of doing the same thing in Rome, of starting a fire and then blaming the Christians so he could have a reason for persecuting them. And of course, here in Thessalonica, it is, as we said, highly ironic why is it ironic? Well, there's the fact that these Jewish accusers are the troublemakers, actually. Yeah, they're the ones who actually started the riot, not the Christians. But then there's the accusation that they make, and I wonder what you thought of this. Do you notice this? It says, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. So this is the equivalent of the crowds at Jesus' trial, chanting, you know, what they, remember what they chant? They chant, we have no king but Caesar. And as we've said before in other contexts, it's a bit like a mouse being involved in a dispute with another mouse and then going to the cat to get help to sort out their argument. 
See, the Roman Empire is like the cat. And one day it will eat your mouse enemy, and the next day it will eat you. And that is actually what happened. So AD 70, the Romans came to Jerusalem, they besieged it, and they destroyed the temple. And so here, when they kind of suck up to the Roman um, occupiers, as it were, at this point, they're kind of playing a, a dangerous game. But here's the question as they say this. Is what they say true? So look at what they say. They are defying Caesar's decrees and they're saying there is another king called Jesus. Now, in one sense, that's exactly right, isn't it? Isn't that true? There is a higher throne than Caesar. We sing that song, don't we? There is a higher throne. And Christians are absolutely saying Jesus is king in a way that Caesar is not, or whichever human power you want to talk about, whether it's a sort of totalitarian regime like uh, Caesar and, and, and the Roman Empire, um, Caesar being the, the name by then just for any, you know, the, the, the particular emperor in charge at that point. Caesar is just the Roman Empire, uh, emperor. But Christians know, no, Jesus is the eternal king of the universe. You could be president, prime minister, whatever, but no, Jesus is the eternal king. And when you think back to Pliny and the Emperor Trajan a few decades later, this was their problem, you see, that the Christians would only swear allegiance to Jesus. They wouldn't swear allegiance to Caesar, which wasn't just about kind of doing a presidential oath or something or a you know, citizenship um, exam or something. This was much more than that because by that stage, the Roman emperor had a divine status in the culture of the time. So not to swear allegiance to the emperor was literally sin against God, as it were, because he was God in that sense. And so the accusation is right in, in that sense, that they're saying there's another king. That, that is what Christians believe. They believe there is another king. And yet, actually, still, in the way that it's intended, think about it slightly differently, it, it still misses the point. Because they're, they're, in saying this, they're implying that Jesus is just another human pretender to the throne. Can you see that? That's kind of what they mean, isn't it, when they say there's another king? Because, of course, Caesar's the real king, and they're, they're saying this guy Jesus is the king. You don't want that, do you, Caesar? So they're kind of implying Jesus and those who follow him are like a sort of little uprising against the might of the Roman emperor and the empire. So do you know out on Hampstead Heath, there's Boudicca's Mound? Do you know about that? So there's, it's a clump of trees with a fence around it in the middle. Um, Boudicca, Bodicea, uh, was the queen of the Iceni tribe. And uh, in about AD 60, so it's actually not you know, around the same time this was all going on, uh, she led that rebellion against the Roman occupiers here in Britain. And uh, I think there are a number of places in Britain where it's claimed that she's buried. And so presumably she's not buried in all of them. But one of them is here on Hampstead Heath. It's supposed to be where after she, 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 she was defeated and uh, they, they, I think they, they managed to kill thousands of Roman soldiers. But in the end, they still were defeated because it's very hard to beat Rome. And uh, she poisoned herself and then she was buried somewhere. But the thing is, you see, what's going on here is the, 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 the implication is that the Thessalonican Jews are implying that this kind of Jesus movement is like one of those Boudicca-type rebellions. You know, it's another king. You don't want that, do you? Squash that. 
But that isn't what Christians are claiming, do you see? Not just that, you know, another pretender to try and get onto the throne that Caesar currently occupies. They're claiming something way more subversive and revolutionary than merely that Jesus is, you know, a pretender to the Roman throne. They're claiming Jesus is the king before whom every human being who ever lived will one day stand and give account. That's what they're claiming. Way more subversive than the people saying these words could could imagine. You see, if they really understood the meaning of their words, it might give them pause for thought. But the thing about this response, you see, that, that we see here, is it's exactly the same thing that still happens all the time today. It's not hard to see this kind of response to Christian faith and the Christian message in the world all around us. Christians are still prosecuted and persecuted around the world all the time, every day. And we, in our support of open doors, that, that they're helping us to understand that. And we, we, we need to know about that, particularly in other countries where it's much harder to be a Christian than it is currently here. But perhaps it's even more important, not just for us to look out there in the world and see people having this response against Christians, but it's, it's important for us to recognise this attitude even in ourselves, if we're honest. You see, don't we all want, in one way or another, to cling on to power? We want to stay in control. So if you're a, you know, if you're a driver and you own a car, do you, do you know the feeling of letting someone else drive your car while you're a passenger? And they're kind of, oh, I'm not sure about this. Or maybe, if it's not that, maybe the feeling of letting someone into your kitchen and allowing them to rearrange where everything is in the kitchen cupboards. You know? Or uh, what about this one? Dismantling your entire Lego collection and rebuilding everything their way. No, it's that feeling of, no, that's mine. I mean, I'm in control. You leave me alone. It's very easy to have that feeling in, in, in those kind of situations. But with Jesus, you see, he's coming not just into our car or our kitchen or our Lego collection, but he's coming into our entire lives, isn't he? And he's saying, I'm in charge now. You need to do things my way. Just like we've heard Ethan explaining in his wonderful testimony of what he believes Jesus is doing in his life. And actually we hear that and and instinctively we often, we don't like that. And so we invent, so we come up with reasons not to do it. We, we come up with sort of smoke screens to stop us. And in our worst moments, we resort even to lies or, or, or force or violence, even if it's not sort of physical violence, other ways of just kind of saying, no, I'm not doing it, or whatever it is. To avoid the issue that we don't want to give up being the one who's in control. But the strange thing, of course is that when we do hand over the keys and stop trying to be in control, what we find isn't less freedom, but total freedom. And we need to hear this maybe if we've never put our trust in Jesus. Maybe we need to sort of take a step back and think, well, why is that? What is stopping me? Is it? If there are genuine questions and things, well, let's, let's let's have a conversation about the questions. That's a good thing to do. But if it's fundamentally, I don't want to give up control, then that's something that we really need to think about and examine what our motives behind that is but actually we all need to to do that even if we're trusting in Jesus too there'll be ways in which we know that as we seek to follow him there might be still things in our lives where we're still saying no but I want to still be in control of that bit I won't give up that and either way whether it's 
never having put our trust in Jesus or, or, or with the day-to-day things as a Christian, what we need to hear loud and clear is that trusting in Jesus doesn't mean less freedom. It means more freedom. It means living as we have been created to live. Total freedom. And that is what the Bereans sensed. And we're going to look finally at them before we finish in a moment. So here's the, here's the second response that we see. Searching the scriptures with eagerness and faith. So verse 10. They have to leave Thessalonica. They, they're running off. As soon as it's night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue again. New town, new Jewish synagogue. And look how different these Jew- Jewish people are. They are of more noble character, says Luke. Now, what would you say makes someone noble? You know, maybe great acts of bravery or courage or self-discipline. Well, Luke says it was their attitude to hearing God's word. That is what made them noble. They received the message with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So you notice that they're eager, they're on the edge of their seat. What's he going to say next? This is really important. I want to hear and listen. They're doing it every day. Do you notice that? It's that important to them. Keep coming back. I want to know what this is saying. They examine the scriptures. Now, for them, okay, they wouldn't have had Bibles like we have Bibles, remember. They didn't have sort of bound copies of Old and New Testaments. So examining the scriptures doesn't quite mean what we imagine. Um, like sort of keen 21st century Christians. Uh, For them to examine the scriptures would have meant to to be listening really carefully and then basically, you know, sitting in a synagogue, they'd been going to the the guys in charge of the scrolls, check that bit out, does it really say that? And then they'd have to kind of get the scroll out and go through, yeah, yeah, look, it says here in the scroll. Examining the scriptures, so it's something they were doing together in that sense. We often think of Bible reading as a kind of personal activity. Well, it's great that we have the option to do that in the 21st century. But historically, it's something that God's people do together around God's word um, and to to check it out together. That's what they're doing. But you can imagine, though, can't you? Even though that was kind of what they would have been doing, you can imagine if they had had the privilege that we have of having individual bound copies of God's word, one under every chair and in every pew, and many of us in our houses, there's no way they'd have left them closed. They'd have been following, they'd have been checking. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to look too closely and embarrass anybody. But there is a reason why we keep saying, please open your Bibles and have a look at the passage, particularly as we are preaching and we are... Um, helping people to understand things week by week on a, on a Sunday. That's because the authority is not with the person standing here and preaching. The authority is with the Bible in front of us. And so it doesn't really matter what I say as a, as a human being, as a, as a preacher standing here. It doesn't matter what other preachers who stand here say in one sense. It matters what God's word says and whether what we say matches what that says. That's why we have to have the Bibles open in front of us because this is God's word breathed out by God so I, you know I want to hear if you think you think I've not understood something rightly in the Bible you know I, I know it can feel a bit intimidating to go and say that to, to, to a preacher um, or to at least sort of check it and say well hang on what do you mean by that is that really right 
that's exactly the right thing to be doing because our authority is the Bible. And, you know, maybe I haven't thought of something. Maybe I've misunderstood something. Because we're all sitting under the authority of God, ultimately, in his words. So it's a healthy thing to listen hard, ask questions, probe more deeply, and to do that together. That's what our small groups are for, particularly, to get the Bible open together to see and understand what it means in the details of our lives. Okay, so the, Berean, um, the Bereans model that to us, but why do these Bereans act like this? These Berean Jews, as they come to put their faith in Jesus, was it just because you know they're particularly keen, you know, a bit geeky, a bit god squaddy? And why would they do this? It's because of how important this message is. You see, this is the message that Christians then and now were and are prepared to die for. You know, to be asked three times if they follow Jesus. And to accept that answering yes will lead directly to their death. This message is about Jesus as the saviour of the world. It's an exclusive message. It's an unpopular message. And yet it's the only message that brings real life with God. So, you know, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to have baptised Ethan this morning. And we, you know, we baptise people regularly. We need to remember, though, don't we? In, in some countries, get baptised is essentially a death sentence. It's a way of attracting the wrath of the authorities. Or you have to do it in total secret, and then you have to be sort of smuggled out. It's life and death. But actually, just as we heard Ethan explain in, in, in his testimony, actually, when you understand that what you have when you put your trust in Jesus is something that gives you life that lasts through death and, and lasts forever, not even death can hurt you. And so the, the, the word martyr... Um, that, is, that we often think of when people have been put to death for their faith, like those people that Pliny was putting to death in martyrs. That word martyr just means witness. That's what that word means. Because these are people who are prepared to witness to Christ and to say this message matters more than anything else. So you can ask me if I'm a Christian and I can know that you're going to put me to death if I say this. But you can ask me, and, and yeah, I'm going to stick with Jesus, because why else, why wouldn't I? Now, don't get confused, that word martyr has been hijacked to mean all kinds of horrible, terrible, you know, terrorist things. I'm not talking about that at all, because that is something where someone is, um, you know, trying to kill other people or whatever. That has nothing to do with this. Can you see that? Because this is saying, when I put my trust in Jesus, if people want to come and hurt me because I've done that, this matters so much that I'm going to stick with him because I know God uh, will take me even through death itself. Now, we pray that that's never going to happen, of course, but we know that it is happening around the world. And so we pray for them and we put our trust in God who walks with us, whatever happens. But what that means is, as we, as we come to the end of this, all of us have a choice today as we hear this. As we hear God's word, as we hear who Jesus is, that he's the saviour of the world, wherever we stand with God. And so the question is, which, which of these responses is us? Which is it going to be? We're going to resist him? Are we going to push him away, resort to lies or force in order to deny what deep down we know is true, that he's the saviour of the world, that he's the Lord of all and Lord of me? Are we going to do that one? Or are we going to say, 
That is the best news I've ever heard. I want to know more. I want to check this is true. I want to listen hard and know God better because if Jesus is the only true way to God, then this matters too much to be apathetic and distracted. I want to know more and I want to know him. So let's take every opportunity with sermons and small groups and meeting with others one-to-one or our own personal Bible reading because if we're people of the king, we're going to be people of his word. Let's pause and reflect on our own response to what we've heard and I'll lead us in a short prayer in a moment. Father God, we praise you that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the saviour of the whole world. And so as we hear that wonderful but challenging message, help us not to respond in kind of self-defence, but instead to respond by wanting to hear more to eagerly dig in to think, is this what the Bible in front of us is saying? Whether we're doing that for the first time or whether we're doing that as we continue to live in Christ each day as a Christian, help us to do that. Help us to help one another in that too, to encourage each other in that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.